when we think about the beginning of this message, it is the introduction that functions, um, can function as a couple different roles, some of them over top of one another, but one of the functions is giving us a reason of what is to come. The introduction tells us why we should listen to what is coming next, why we should listen to uh, the, what is being said afterwards. We find introductions in books, and I am always told that we should read the introduction prior to running right into the first chapter. It gives us something there. Additionally, an introduction could be an interesting missive or a story that kind of tells us a little bit about what the main story is going to be or gives us an example of something to hold on to as we talk about the main story, we give, you know, that, that, that comes in. So there is a certain difficulty with an introduction to this particular set of scriptures in Genesis chapter 25 verses 12 through 18. It is the generations, or in the Hebrew, the Toledot of Ishmael. I would propose to you, before we talk more about these verses, that there are two ditches that we can fall into when we look at verses like these. Because we're talking about a family tree, about a line of people that we won't hear anything much about after this, that we can fail to see how it fits in this first ditch, we can fail to see how it fits in God's overall plan of redemption that dominates all of Scripture. Because it's seemingly a list of secondary players or third-level players that don't fit into the redemptive line or the redemptive narrative or the story of salvation cleanly. If it were a movie, Ishmael would be a second-level player, and then everybody else that's mentioned in here would just be passing around in the background. They would, wouldn't be quite in focus. We would see them in the movie, but they would be out of focus. We wouldn't be able to really identify who they were if somebody didn't tell us who they were. All these sons, these 12 sons that he has, they're blurry. They kind of sit in the backgrounds like scenery. At best, they might add depth to the picture that we see, right? But they seemingly don't have any uh, any significance to us. We seemingly could read the entirety of Scripture and skip these seven verses and not be worse for the wear for it. We would see them in the credits listed as tall man number one, tall man number two, man with the blue turban, man with the camel, and so forth. That's what they would be listed as. They just seemingly have nothing to do with the story. And that's a ditch we can fall into. We fall into the ditch and say that it's insignificant. We can't quite understand why they're there. Uh, we never really hear about them anymore. We don't hear any speeches from them. They never speak. Uh, so therefore, it's insignificant. That's ditch number one.
Ditch number two is we can swing the opposite direction. We can say to ourselves, well, they're definitely important because they're in Scripture, which is true. Which is 100% true that it is important because they're in Scripture. But then we say to ourselves, boy, they must be important. There must be something about them that I must discover to see what the meaning is. I must search the scriptures high and low to find out what the meaning is behind these people that are listed here. These people that are in the background, that seemingly in the background. And we tend to complicate the issue, falling into the ditch of trying to seek hidden knowledge about them. We're going to uh, extrapolate things throughout history. We're going to get stuck into genealogies that are there. Because we think we have to find the hidden answer to them. 1 Timothy 1, chapter 4 warns us. It says, 1 Timothy chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, says the following. Not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the stewardship from God which is by faith. So we have two ditches. They don't mean anything. We can skip over them. Or we try to seek hidden knowledge about them and try to impart something to them that wasn't actually there. I was literally reading through a commentary this week about this, and it said that most people would not exposit these verses in a message. Now, this is from a trusted resource that I've used many times. Uh, I have to say that I was a little dismayed when I read that. Right? But I know that because 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness, that these verses are important. And I will tell you that these per verses are significant. They are not insignificant. They are significant by the basis that it is God's Word. Therefore, they are important. But do not try to impart something on these verses that does not exist. So we must approach them with care. We're not searching for things that aren't there. We're not looking for connections that don't exist. Because what we can do then is we can take these men and we can put them in the headlining position of the movie. Man in Blue Turban becomes the headliner over the main player, which is Isaac, right? So we don't want to do that. We got to keep it in right perspective. We have to see that this is right between the death of Abraham and the generations of Isaac. We will see, I think we'll see many things. We'll see two specific things. We'll see, obviously, God's sovereignty in play, but we also see God's common grace in play, too, in these verses. We will importantly see that these players are the background upon which the promise is clearly seen. 
They are the background upon which the promise is clearly seen. As benefactors, they are benefactors of God's grace, as we'll discuss soon, of his goodness, his mercy, and his restraint. Psalm 145.9 tells us, The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. Not some of his works. His mercies are over all of his works. Not this specific section, only through the promise, but his mercies are through every place that he works. And the places where he works are in everything. There's not an errant atom anywhere in the universe. We must consider as we read these passages then that these background players that we see them, they will be a bane to the existence of Israel. They are not members of the promise, which I will, re I will remind us of frequently through this message. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23 tells us the, father, no, the following. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? Rather than he should turn from his ways as live. Or Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And these men will fall under the path of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from their way and live, they, they turn back and turn back from their evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel, he says. The common grace that comes to these men these ones that are not of the promise, these ones that will not find salvation, it is that backdrop upon which we see the promise that is in Isaac and the redemption that is in Isaac. And we know that whatever is being done by the Lord is good because it is being done by the Lord. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, that in common grace of the Lord, the common grace that comes to all, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, if you turn there with me for one moment. Paul speaking to the church in Rome. Or do, you do, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Do you not know that the kindness of the Lord leads you to repentance? That the common grace that comes, his loving kindness that is given, that is shown to some degree to all, as John Murray would say, every favor of whatever kind or degree falling short of salvation which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys is at the hand of God. That all these things, the goodness that God gives is to lead us to repentance. And saying this is kind of getting ahead of myself, but these men who are of the cursed line are benefactors of God's grace as they are made into great nations. Yet they will not see the promise. And we must hold that in abeyance in us and say, not all do. 
but it is all for God's glory. So we see common grace, and we see God's sovereignty, God's sovereign plan. And what we do know is that it's all significant. It's all important. It's all there for a reason. Genesis chapter 25, verse 12. Genesis 25, verse 12. Now these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant woman, bore to Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael. By their names, in the order of their birth, Neboeth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Adbeel, and Mibsam, and Mishma, and Duma, and Masa, Hadad, and Tema, Jatar, Nefesh, and Kedamah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names, by their villages and by their camps, twelve princes according to their tribes. Now you will notice that there is nothing, uh, nothing that is said theologically about God in those passages. There is nothing that is said about the redemptive line in, the, in those passages. There's nothing that is tell, tell, telling directly about the covenant with Abraham in those passages. It is merely just a list of the sons of Ishmael, 12 of them. But I did say that nothing is insignificant, that it all matters. And it does point to some theological truths about the Lord in these passages. It does tell us something about the Lord and his ways, some important things about them. Number one, we are reminded Ishmael is Abraham's son. We know that Ishmael is Abraham's son. And we know that the Lord promised that he too, Ishmael, would be a great nation. Not the son of the promise, but that he would be a great nation. We see here in regard to that promise that was given to them that they these were the names of their village or their camps, or it even could be translated into the idea of fortresses or castles that are there. And we remember Genesis 16, way back in Genesis 16, Verse 7, we remember that Hagar had laid her son Ishmael underneath a bush and then goes off a distance. Right? She is worried. Uh, she is upset that her son is apparently going to die. And in verse 7 it says, The angel of Yahweh found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, Sarai's servant woman, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of Yahweh said to her, return to your mistress and humble yourself under her hands. Moreover, verse 10, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your seeds so that they will be too many 
to be counted. The angel of Yahweh said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you will call his name Ishmael, because Yahweh has heard of your affliction. Right? If we run then to verse, chapter 17, verse 20 and 21, it says these words, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes, the 12 which we just named, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Not part of the covenant. Not part of the promise. Not part of the redemptive line. Ishmael will be a great nation. He will have 12 sons that will be princes that will be part of that great nation that will grow in their size. But he will not be part of the promise. He has not been part of the election to salvation. He will benefit from God's common grace on this earth and be great in the signs of men, but will not be part of the redemptive line. The nations that he bears will be those that are God-haters, those that, are, that dishonor the Lord, those that do not follow the Lord. Their hearts of these nations will be set against the Lord, and they will be the bane of the Israelites. We know this because one of the minor mentions that we get in the scripture of them moving forward is Psalm chapter 83. Psalm 83, starting in verse 1. A psalm of Asaph, which is probably a priest, and it says, O God, do not remain at rest. Do not be silent. And, O God, do not be quiet. For behold, your enemies roar. And those who hate you have lifted up their heads. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, come, let us wipe them out as a nation that is focused upon Israel, that the name of Israel will be remembered no more, for they have conspired together with one heart against you. They cut a covenant. They are not part of the covenant that the Lord has made, but they have cut a covenant against the Lord. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also has joined with them. They have become the power of the children of Lot. This is who these, these children of Ishmael are lumped together with, who are found within. I cannot help but consider Psalm 2 when I read that, not part of my notes, but it is clearly there. Psalm 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh, against the Lord, and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart, cast away their cords from us. These are what these nations, these children, these 12 princes of Ishmael do. They war against the Israelites as 
God-haters. You could say to yourself, then why were they allowed to exist? And I would say to you, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 29, 29, the mysterious things of the Lord belong to him, but the things that are given to us are for us to have. We do not know exactly why the Lord has allowed this to occur, but we do know that it is significant because he has allowed it to occur. We know that in his providence that he does all things for the good of those who love him. We know that we might not understand why they are still there, that he has blessed them to the degree of giving them great nations and great wealth, but we know that it's all part of God's providential plan, and that we know that against these God-haters, that Isaac will stand out as a glittering diamond against that black backdrop. It'll be clear to see the difference between those of the promise and those that are not. We must always remember that they, Ishmael, although blessed by God's common grace, is not the son of the promise. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. Proverbs 16, verse 9. This particular verse, the heart of man plans his way, but Yahweh, but the Lord directs his steps. that in their hearts of turning against the Lord, that they are still steps directed by God. In a visitation recently in a hospital room, this became very clear in the discussions that were had that everything is within God's direction, in his purview, that nothing is lost on him. That whatever is happening that we think is bad or not optimal is absolutely for his glory, including the sons of Ishmael that become a great nation, that become the bane of existence for the Israelites, including that. We have to rest with that. We have to consider that even if we don't understand it in its entirety. Then our verses in Genesis chapter 25, as we come to the end of that. It says in verse 17, these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. And they dwelt from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt. As one goes toward Assyria, he settled in the face of all his brothers. There's a few things within those two verses to consider. 
Because last week I talked about Abraham being gathered to his people. And that's a good thing. Ishmael is gathered to his people, and I would propose to you that life after this is eternal. And those that are not found in the Lord will be eternally damned. And I want you to consider this. That means that a person that is found outside of salvation in Christ is will die eternally and never be dead. They will die eternally. They will be eternally dying and never dead. Gathered to his people is demonstrating that there is more to life. There is not annihilation. I said that last week, and I'll say it again. Do not fall into that trap that people think that bad people are just annihilated and good people go to heaven. That is not the case. Eternal damnation falls for all those that are set against the Lord and his ways, that are set against his precepts and his laws. For all those that are not found in Christ, there is eternal damnation that sets before them. I was reminded yesterday that particular passage in John chapter 6, waiting for my wife to get upset at me for not giving her these verses, giving me the eye. But I wasn't going to go there, but as, as I read these verses, it just kind of percolates right up to the top. If I tell you that there is damnation for those found, out of, found outside of Christ, you may bristle at that and disagree. Your problem is not with me. Your problem is with God's word because that's what he says. It's not what I say. The scripture is clear that those who are found outside of Christ are eternally damned. So it's interesting that when you go to John chapter 6 and you find these words, and this is, I cannot remember who said this, but I'm stealing it fully from them, but trying not to take credit, right? He says in verse 65, and Jesus was saying, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. Ishmael has not been granted by the Father to be saved, okay? Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go? And stealing from this other person, I'll, I'll compel you with that. If you hear me say that there's no salvation outside of Jesus, do you want to go? Do you want to leave from that teaching? Because that's the teaching we're going to give here. And I would suggest that if that is uncomfortable to you, that you leave now. Because it is biblical. And if you are against that, you're not biblical. You're somewhere in your own mind. Because Jesus said, my teachings are hard, and as I've said, stolen from one of my professors, the Bible says it, I believe it. It doesn't pass through my judgment to see whether or not I believe it. If the Bible says, right there, you can't come to me unless it's been granted from the Father, I believe it. There's no exception for a good person or for feeding the homeless or anything like that. It says it must be granted by the Father. 
And many, because they heard this, left. So you might say to yourself, it's unfair that Ishmael and his sons are eternally damned. Maybe, but I'll say this. What's amazing that God saves anyone, that those are found in Christ he's chosen to save. For whatever reason, Ishmael will be, and his line will be eternally damned, and they will be done so because of their own actions. Because they have turned away from the Lord. Because they have willingly turned away against his precepts. And I just leave that there, and it might feel uncomfortable, and that's okay. And I would add Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, where it says, From the foundations of the earth, this has been decreed. There is no adjustment of the plan as people go on and they do things. It has been decreed from the beginning that God knows the end from the beginning. So in this death of Ishmael, we just know that he's gathered to his people and that the sons dwelt in this area east of Egypt and Shur, which is east of Egypt, as one goes to Assyria and they settled in the face of all his brothers it's a very difficult Hebrew phrase. We don't know 100% of what that actually means. Uh, there's, and it's just, I just say to you that don't put too much into it. Don't search for hidden meaning in there because there's many scholars that say, yeah, I, we just don't get it. We don't know exactly what it means. Uh, and we'll leave that up to the mysterious things of the Lord. So I say those things as we come to the end of that genealogy and as we, as we go into the, some concluding thoughts on this, we must always keep in mind that it is significant because God placed it in his word. It is significant because it tells us about these people that we'll never really hear of again. That we don't hear about their words, about their thoughts, or, or anything like that. They be, they by the fact that they are no longer here, are significant to understanding the generations of Isaac and the rest of the book of Genesis that tells us about his family line, about how that redemptive line will come through. They are significant because there's nothing that is insignificant with the Lord. Not only does the Lord know the individual hairs on your head, that's from Luke 12, verse 7, but turn with me to Psalm chapter 139, verse 16. Psalm 139, verse 16. Your eyes have seen my unshaped substance. And in your book, all of them were written. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Your eyes have seen my unshaped substance. And your book, and in your book, all of them were written. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. The Lord 
not only knows everything about you when before you were even formed, but he knows every single sparrow that falls to the ground. He knows not only every single blade of grass, but every single atom and electron that's in each one of those blades of grass. He knows the count of the number of grains of sand there are on the earth. And he knows the actual location of every single electron that's in the universe. Everything is significant to the Lord. Everything is significant to the Lord. There is nothing wasted in his eternal plan. There is nothing wasted in the sons of Israel, Ishmael becoming a great nation that is trouble for Israel. There is nothing wasted in that. We need to understand it as the background that we see the promise against, the darker background that we see that promise against. We see this group of people that trust in the way of men, that do not trust in the Lord. Psalm 146, verses three through six, do not trust in princes, do not trust in mortal man in whom there is no salvation. We could stop right there. How many people do you know that do that? They trust in 401Ks. They trust in their job. They trust in their spouse. They trust in an inheritance they might get. But there is no salvation in that. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. And in that very day, his thoughts perish. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. It isn't man that keeps faith forever, it's the Lord who keeps faith forever. These sons of Ishmael and himself were not destined for the promise, but they were of the family of man. They were not the sons of God. We consider Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. For ourselves, those of us that are here that are found in Christ Jesus, also we, we, those found in the Lord, have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Or Romans chapter 11, verse 33. And I'll give you a moment to turn there. It is a significant passage. But when we consider these verses in Genesis chapter 25, Romans 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, and unfathomable his ways. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Sometimes we sit back and we look at these passages like in Genesis 25 between the death of Abraham and the line of Isaac 
that we see there and we wonder why. But we know that it is significant because the Lord has done this thing. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17, in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, the heirs of the promise does not show this to the heirs that are not of the promise. If you are found in Christ, you are of that promise. In the same way, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, the unchangeableness of his purpose, right? God has ordained to give those, the Father, that the Father will give. You are found there. It is unchangeable. Romans 9. 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. We must not make the mistake of saying that they are, that make the mistake of saying they are without fault because it was his plan. God is not the author of sin. The person is fully responsible, including these sons of Ishmael. They're fully responsible for everything they do and they are fully the sole reason for their eternal loss that they'll have. It is difficult, I understand that. But it is true because the Bible says it is true. James chapter 1, verse 13, let no one say that when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. So we know in these passages that some are ordained for election and salvation, and some do not receive that ordination. Some are left to their own devices. Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the way, for the day of evil. And then on the flip side of that, is those found in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 2, verse 19, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, so we have this foundation and a seal, unchangeable, unbreakable. The Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows those who are his. Everyone who names the name of the Lord then is to abstain from the wickedness. So I could go on and on with those passages, but I will not. Um, You get the picture. By the Lord's eternal plan, we see these men as a backdrop to the promise that comes through Isaac, and it is significant. It is significant because, number two, it is God's sovereignty that's on display. Acts chapter 17, verse 26, he made from one man or one blood every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Consider this, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Wherever you're at right now is exactly where the Lord has placed you. Whatever is going on right now is exactly where the Lord has placed you. All have been in their places at the appointed times and locations, including Ishmael and the sons. 
just considering some of the words that I have written here. It is interesting to consider that the time when we didn't believe in the Lord, we did not believe by our own free will. And that the moment that we do believe in the Lord, the moment that our heart is changed, we believe in the Lord of our own free will. In the moment our heart is changed, that of our own free will, there is nothing we can do but believe in the Lord. All by God's design. All significant. Your life as a believer is significant. Your life found in the Lord is significant. Your life found in the Lord, reading the scripture, glorifying him in doing so, and nobody knows is significant to the Lord. Everything you do is significant to the Lord. Everything you do is significant to the Lord. Do we live in that manner? Were the Lord to come as a thief in the night, what would he think about what you're doing? How you're living? Do we live as though everything we do is significant for the Lord? Or do we only occasionally consider what the Lord desires out of our lives? Do we say that we're a son of Isaac in that line and living like the sons of Ishmael? Or are our lives in alignment with what the Lord desires? The caution then is don't think too highly of yourself, but also don't think too little of yourself because you don't have a big platform or you don't know a lot of people or you don't think you make any difference because it is all significant. Being found in Christ, it is all significant to the Lord. It is all important to the Lord. If he knows where exactly the location is of every sparrow that has fallen to the earth and at the exact moment that has occurred, would you ever consider yourselves being found in Christ Jesus, the one that died for you and imparted his righteousness to you, how much more important you are to him than that sparrow? You are significant, found in Christ. You are part of his sovereign plan, found in Christ. So I'll close on Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Colossians 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than for men knowing that from the Lord, verse 24, and knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Serve the Lord Christ. Serve the Lord Christ. Let's all bow our heads. Father God, thank you for this day and these wonderful sisters and brothers that are here with us today. Thank you for the teaching that has occurred today. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the ability to pray. Thank you for the ability to repent of our sins. 
Please be with those who cannot be with us today. Bless them and keep them until we meet again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.